Coming into the final week of the Holy 40 Days, which will culminate with this coming Friday, and then we will embark upon the end times. This day is always set aside for St. Mary of Egypt, who, as you know, had led a life of unbridled lust from the time she was 12 years old. And for 17 years, even though we understand that she was baptized as a Christian and raised by Christian parents, she led a life that was contradictory to her own eternal best interests. And she led many others astray using her powers. And then one day, as you know, she desired to see the cross of all things. A woman who had never denied herself a single darkened impulse wanted to venerate that cross of self-denial. And she could not. She was blocked by an invisible force, a field of force, which singled her out amongst all the throng of sinful people in Jerusalem and would not let her enter. It is useless to ask why. The providence of God. That's all you can say. And she's looking around and she's seeing everybody else going through that great door that we go into when we visit Jerusalem, and she cannot go through that door. And she is indignant, surprised, amazed, frightened. And then her eye falls on an icon. And she sees an icon which must have been so familiar in the Mediterranean world and there in Jerusalem the human mother of the second person of the Trinity, the eternal, the pre-eternal Logos of the Father, whose blood gives our Savior his authentic humanity. And the mother is holding the child who is her salvation. And this overwhelming visual image that unfortunately most eyes, even Christian eyes, glance over and glide over without catching this icon of the incarnation of our Savior. Her eye is arrested and held fast, hooked. What was going on? Was it that her sins centered on her fallen flesh, and here is the enfleshment, the incarnation of God. Who knows what in the depths of her personality was working with lightning speed, apparently, as often happens in the presence of a visual 
image which gives art its great power over mankind. But she is blinded by the light and given back her sight. She suddenly sees her life for what it is. The icon provides the large context in which she understands in a blinding flash everything. And she does the most perfect thing that a human being does under such circumstances. She begins to weep. These are not tears of self-pity. These are tears of authentic repentance, remorse, compunction, contrition, of great sadness and sorrow for the wall that she has built between herself and her Savior, that wall that was broken down by the yes of the very woman depicted in the icon as she holds the fruit of her affirmation, her affirmative response, as Christ will say, more blessed they who have heard the word of God and kept it. (coughs) So it is that everything in Mary's life is turned upside down, backwards and inside out. Having lived for wine and pleasure and what passes for fun and self-indulgence, she becomes a woman pouring herself out through the tears of her eyes and verifying the authenticity of her tears with a life that continues to amaze us as we read it in the 21st century. She confesses. She receives Holy Communion. Notice how quickly these things happen. With what insight the clergy understand that there is no cause here for a lengthy penance of some years. Everyone is drawn into the orbit of her incisive, clear vision. She crosses the Jordan and goes out into the wilderness, away from the city, which was the scene of her unbridled sins. And there, leading a life that we cannot understand, she works out her salvation before the blazing face of the living God. How amazing. And there she is discovered after many decades by the humble priest Zosimus, who during Lent follows the custom of the fathers of Palestine in Gaza and leaving their monastery for the 40 days and going out into the desert to live on bare subsistence and prayer. And He begs her for her story and she tells her that which comes down to us now as the life of St. Mary of Egypt. 
a brilliant and gifted Anglican priest who was a great historian of the monastic movement, cannot believe that it was possible for a woman to lead such a life, and he dismisses it as myth. This is pure fiction, he says. Der was Chitty, who normally we can trust. The problem is that in the 1960s and 70s, an English woman, a retired professor at the University of Cambridge, a mathematician, and a convert to the Orthodox Church, begged her spiritual father's blessing to go out and live, attempt to live, a life similar to that. And she went to the south of France. No, not to the places where pretty people go and indulge themselves. To the south of France, where there is a vast area, many acres of just rock, outcropping of rock. Here and there a blade of grass. It's an amazing area. I've seen photographs. I've driven past the area, but never stopped there. And she went with a, in her monastic garb, with a backpack full of big round loaves of dried French bread. She lived the life there for three years. Snow, sleet, ice, burning heat, dry and humid, winds, gales, storms, fear, 24 hours, times 7, times 52, times 3, day in and day out. She was free to go at any time. She was free to go after the fourth day. Her health broke down. And being a scientist, she understood that something was seriously wrong. She thought it might not be edifying for people if she died there. <laughs> she didn't want to discourage others from following such a way because she loved that life. She received herself back. She understood what it meant to be human out there on that vast expanse of rock. I saw her only once at a cathedral in London. She was quite old then, and it had been some years since she had been out on her rock for three years. And she was an old lady with a cane, very thin, very white, very pale, and very at peace. I will say that she radiated around her a field of peace. And of course, she was an Englishwoman, everybody was saying, well, <laughs> so much for following Derwis Chitty and his idea that this is impossible for a woman, because she did it. And she would have done it if she'd been younger for 47 years. The Gospel this morning gives us a broad clue as to where we are headed when Christ mentions to his disciples, his incomprehending disciples, that he is going to die and mentions specific details of the form of his killing. The response of the sons of Zebedee is 
to attempt to get a place, a chosen place close to him, because they still cannot shake themselves free of what was in that day the popular conception of the Messiah. Essentially a military political leader riding in, charging in on a white horse and freeing Israel from the clutches of the pagan and uh, unclean Romans. And whatever else they thought, whatever else they heard, whatever else they saw in the three-year public ministry, they still had this dominant leading idea that the Messiah, the purpose of a Messiah is to get rid of the Romans. It is, of course, uh, a vast impoverishment of what the Old Testament means by Messiah. But we are always trying to cut God to fit some passing moment through which we are passing as a culture, as an individual person, what have you. So, Christ says it can't be done. Those kinds of assignments within the eternal council of the Holy Trinity originate in the Father, not in Him. Aha! But then the other, the ten, learn what the sons of Zebedee have done. And they wax indignant, as you can well imagine. And they begin to be wroth with James and John. And so it comes to pass that we see before it happens that the death, the killing of Jesus Christ is already a sign that creates tensions, misunderstandings, that divides people, and so on and so forth. This brings us up to a very important point, and that is that the answer to the question, who is Christ, is crucial. We live in an age which, as everyone, who is anyone, agrees, marginalizes doctrine, relativizes doctrine. It's very interesting to know historically what various groups have said about various things, but finally we understand that there is this vast melting pot at the end, and what difference does it make? We have a very relativizing attitude towards those things. And yet the subtext of the Gospel today points unarguably to the crucial importance of knowing what is going on, of understanding what is happening. We know that the sons of Zebedee are well-intentioned and very good men. In our uh, terms, they are nice. In addition to being nice, they are very close to the Savior, and they are rather leaders within the community of the Holy Apostles. And yet, they are absolutely mistaken about a point of doctrine here, and it creates great trouble. Christ works very hard and speaks very sternly to keep the apostolic mind focused on the same page 
moving in the same direction, marching to the same drummer. Who do men say I am? he asks. Who do you say I am? he asks. Both of these two different questions, both of these questions are important. The reason for the importance is that there is no way to understand and therefore no way to receive the Lord's crucifixion or his resurrection or his ascension or the gifts of the Spirit at Pentecost unless you understand what is going on. As Father Simon would tell us, when we get something new, read the directions. May God grant that this very rich Sunday of St. Mary of Egypt, the Sunday on which we hear the Lord's first clear announcement to his own, what lies just ahead of him and therefore ahead of them, may God grant that the gifts of this Sunday will feed our minds and our hearts throughout the week as we become more and more sober understanding what we ourselves will be undergoing in short days. Amen and Amen.